Mark 9. We're going to start in verse 1. Bang. I don't know if that got louder or if I just leaned in. It's fine. Um, we're going to start in verse 1. This is, uh, this is the transfiguration account. I um, have been meditating a lot lately on the glory of Jesus. Uh, I've been asking him often, early and often, to help me take my mind off myself and to fix my gaze on him. There's a lot in this account that we can kind of just read, right? We think, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, Jesus shone like the sun. Sweet. But there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of Jewish context we might be missing, first century context that we might kind of not uh, be absorbing at a, you know, a surface level reading. And I kind of want to dig into some of that. This is, Mark is one of three gospel authors to record the transfiguration account it was also recorded in Matthew 16 28 through 17 2 and Luke 9 uh, starting at verse thir- uh, 27 I'm not sure how I uh, going through like verse 32 but I didn't I didn't write that down I'm kind of that came off the top of my head but I, I hope I got those addresses right all that to say we will start in chapter 9 verse 1 mark and He said to them, this is Jesus speaking. If it's in red letters, you probably know that. Surely I say to you that there are some here, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And, uh, you know, there are multiple people who have mistaken this passage as Jesus saying that there were some standing there who wouldn't die before he, he returned, before he would come for his second coming, right? That would give about... 50, 60 years, really, for Jesus to fulfill this prophecy because that was about the length at which um, the eldest of the, well, I shouldn't say the eldest, but those of the apostles lived, um, uh, you know, into the 90s, as some say that that John the apostle lived. But uh, I, I think if you'd read through the context, you'd find that that's not actually what it's saying. If that was what it's saying, you, you'll hear skeptics, you'll hear critics, you'll hear non-Messianic Jews or Jews that at least... They all claim to be messianic, which I have a problem with because the Messiah had to become before the destruction of the second temple, which if you don't accept Jesus as your Messiah, you don't have a Messiah. That's another issue. But a non-messianic Jew, one that doesn't accept Jesus, a skeptic, an atheist, they would look at this and say, aha, look, Jesus made a prophecy and he hasn't come back. So Jesus is a failed prophet. And according to your own book, right, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, you shouldn't even listen to him. Right? He's leading you after false gods, after himself, and uh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't fear him. You shouldn't listen to him. But again, I don't think that's – I'm just trying to bring up things to you guys that you might hear. Right? I, don't, I don't hold those positions, but I want to bring them up so in case someone bring this, brings this up. Because a lot of the time – I guess I should have led with this. A lot of the time you talk to someone, and this might be someone being sincere or just someone who sincerely wants to ruin your faith regardless of how they sincerely they're seeking faith. Um, they'll bring up the issue of supposed Bible contradictions. And they probably won't say supposed or alleged. They'll just say straight up Bible contradictions. And maybe you've heard me say it before. Early on in my faith, I was working with a man doing construction, uh, doing landscaping, and he talked about Bible contradictions. And here I am. I'm 20 years old. I just got saved. And every other day all I could think about before I met Christ was suicide. And this guy's bringing up Bible contradictions, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Like, is this not the word of God? Like, did did, did these men, were they not really led by the Holy Spirit? 
is Jesus, is he made up, right? And I say all that because I freaked out initially. Um, I was a very young Christian. I was definitely being attacked, but not so much by him. I, I think he seemed pretty sincere, but there was definitely a spiritual attack there. What I realized through the years is when people bring up supposed Bible contradictions, because now anyone can pull out their smartphone and just Bible contradiction, right? And they can give you 1,500 of them. Because like I said about this passage, a lot of people don't understand Judaism. They don't understand the first century. They don't understand Moses, right? There's a lot of context that people are missing. But as the years have gone by, God's ironed out. I, I want to say very confidently all of the issues that I have had. I'm not saying I've addressed every issue that there is because a lot of the issues aren't issues for me. But I realize that some people have issues with scripture that need to be addressed. All I'm saying is don't don't jump ship, right? Like pray, like get on your knees, be humble, ask God, listen, I, I want to, I need an answer. Like this is rocking my boat, but don't jump ship. And, and then, and ask the people who, you know, study the word that love the word, people that you trust, uh, people with good conduct. I mean, you, you definitely want someone um, who, you know, is walking with the Lord also, but all that to say, there's actually multiple con supposed contradictions in this passage that we're going to talk about. And I, I believe I have very good answers for them. And that, not that I, the Holy Spirit, right, has led men along and there are answers to these things. So all that to say, um, supposed contradictions, we just need to investigate them more thoroughly. Uh, so all that, to, moving on again, Jesus' statement, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the, the kingdom of God present with power. Verse 2 says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So in all three gospel accounts, it gives time indicators. In Matthew, it says the same, if not the same exact thing, a very similar thing to Mark after six days. Um, Luke and Luke 9 says something, it says, and about some eight days, he uses a he uses a Greek word meaning about or approximately. And and Luke actually in his writings he uses that word more than three times more than all of the other New Testament writers combined. He uses it 17 times among um, in Luke and in Acts. It's the Greek word uh, Jose, right? I hope I'm it sounds very Spanish, but it's Greek. Anyway, um, so he uses that word about. He, he, he tends to use, you know, it's like, like, well, or about, or approximately. He, he tends to use that often where the other gospel writers and the other writers of the New Testament don't. There's, there's that. I think that's a very, you can't say it's a contradiction when one says six and one says about eight. But there's also another resolution being that he could have been talking about the day that Jesus made the prophecy, then there was six days in between, and then the day the prophecy came to pass. Um, the fact that all three gospel accounts, though, have the, the transfiguration taking place on the very next verse gives us a lot of credibility that this is these two are directly connected, right, fulfilling the prophecy of verse one, and also that uh, these these date indicators they they shouldn't stumble us. There's there's room. There's Luke definitely presents that wiggle room. But I also want to turn to Second Peter. Actually, I'll read, I'll read through verse 3 because it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. And again, that's part that fulfills part of that prophecy. There's some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God present. 
some, right? Peter, James, and John, there were those three that were often drawn aside apart from the 12, right? Remember there was a 70 that was sent out. There was 120 that followed him from the beginning of his ministry to the end. But then there was, there was Peter, James, and John. And those three were often pulled aside for special revelation. In this case, often pulled aside to be, to be spoken to by Jesus. And they go up with him on the high mountain, up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured, right? And that's that, the Greek word metamorpho. This, this transfiguration where it says his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth could whiten them. I mean, plainly, I mean, what it's saying is the, the brightness, the whiteness coming from the clothes is something far above what could be humanly accom- accomplished. It couldn't be accomplished naturally. It's, it's coming from within him. It's shining from without of, of it's his inherent glory, right? And I want to I wanna kind of get caught up on that word metamorpho because it's not a direct um, cross-reference, but Paul uses that word metamorpho when he talks about the way we're to be transformed, right? There's, there's a – Paul makes a point in the beginning of the gospel, at the beginning of the epistle to the Romans, that the promise of Jesus' coming was made in the Old Testament by the prophets. It was, it was in God's holy scripture, right? And the, we, we talked about the promise of Jesus' coming, the promise of his gospel, and how much, how serious that is, the passion that Jesus took on flesh and he died the agonizing death. And therefore, we can trust the other promises. So we see a thing like this, where we see Jesus' inherent glory shining forth, and it should give us confidence where we see him, that word metamorpho, we see him transformed. And then it, later on in, uh, in Romans, I have it bookmarked, it's one of my earliest favorite verses. Paul talks about, you know, the promise of the gospel, how we're saved by uh, we're saved by grace through faith. He gives multiple examples. Uh, he talks about the Christian life, the war against the flesh, the promise in the spirit. He talks about um, how God God's promises to Israel hasn't failed in Romans nine through eleven. Then he gets into Romans twelve, considering all this, right? That God hasn't broken His promise. God's promises don't fail. He says in verse one, "I beseech you, therefore, brethren." By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Remember, there's so many, and I hope that I'm not beating a dead horse when I bring this up. It, it doesn't, doesn't seem cliche to me, but you'll hear people say, like, I jump in front of a bullet for the person. or You know, okay, that's great. But God is asking you to be a living sacrifice. Are you, Jesus said in, in, in chapter 8 of, of Mark, like just before chapter 9 here, he says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and die every day. Are you willing to be a living sacrifice? He doesn't want you dead. He wants you shining. He wants you to be salt and light to this generation. It's your reasonable service to be a living sacrifice. And he goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That word metamorpho, transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed, right? Paul calls husbands to be con- continually washing their wives with the water of the word. Is that something we're doing in our own lives? Because we're not going to do it for other people if we're not doing it for ourselves. If, our, if we've made our own personal God something other than Jesus, you're not, going to be, you're not going to be that cleansing outpouring of the Holy Spirit from you onto others that call, Paul is calling you to be. That Paul, that God. God Almighty, the one who took on flesh and came to die in your place, you're not going to be that. But the reasonable, your reasonable service is to be that. 
reasonable service is, is to look at these promises that God made in the Old Testament fulfilled and, and we have recorded for us and say, that's, that's worthy of my trust. I had to walk in it. I had to walk that out. But that back to Mark chapter 9, that transfiguration, the, the transfiguration, it's that external transformation, the, the, the glory coming from within Jesus. God wants Peter, James, and John, he wants them to see this because he wants them to understand Christ's inherent glory. Remember how he's doing miracles and he's being accused of, oh, he does this by Beelzebub. And then he's, he's even with them in the boat. And they wake him up and he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and everything goes goes still. I heard I heard uh, Joe Foch talk about, this was years ago, but it was, it was, I was on um, such on an island with Justin. We're cleaning up litter for weeks. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Maybe you do. No, it wasn't that. It was like something sister. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. I was out there and I, I'm looking out at the water and I'm hearing this passage and he's talking about the way that these storms, they... They'd rage up on the Sea of Galilee, and, and for them to calm down would take hours. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, like all that knocking back and forth. And he's saying, but yet Jesus stands up, and he, he just speaks to creation, and bam, it goes flat. And then that, I mean, in thinking of that, and these guys really not quite sure who this guy is, they're terrified. Who is this? Who commands the wind and the waves, and they just obey, Right? There's still a little bit of a disconnect, and you see that a lot with Jesus' ministry. There's a lot about um, this Messiah, obviously, that they want. But when, they, when he comes, they want him to set up. They want him to rule, and they want him to reign, right? And so th there's a lot of confusion, but like in the boat, like, oh, my goodness. So God, God the Father, no doubt, wanting them to understand, like, no, there's an inherent glory that far surpasses anything you've, you've experienced in this world. And now... Jesus is getting that opportunity here on the Mount of Transfiguration to show that forth. So his clothes became shining exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth could whiten. And Elijah appeared to them and with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So I have some I have some opinions on this, but Elijah appearing, right? Elijah and Moses, um, in my opinion, it certainly seems like Moses, no doubt you'd understand the law of Moses. Like Jews would often just refer to the Torah as Moses, like Moses said, right? Not that so much it was Moses's authority, but Moses was so intertwined with the first five books that they just simply refer to it as Moses. Um, Elijah uh, being, he would be the representation for the prophets. It seems most likely to me. Um, and so these, these guys, like they're standing there and they're talking in the old Testament, what's prophesied we see fulfilled in the new Testament. And, and of course you, you might wonder like, what are they talking about? Cause here in Mark, it doesn't tell us, but if you turn to, um, Luke and Luke nine thirty one, it says that, um, when they're there with him in glory, they're speaking. They're, they spoke to him about the decease which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He was about. He's talking about his crucifixion, his death, right? So they're speaking to him about the death he's about to die in Jerusalem, and it's like it's really. I'm going to read some passages that makes it like to me. It's like no duh. Like that's what the, that's there's a, there's good reason for why they're talking about what they're talking about. 
But um, what was I going to say? Anyway, they're speaking to him about, oh, accomplish. When it says he's going to accomplish. Like who, who thinks about death as something to be accomplished? Everybody dies. But it's not really an accomplishment. It's like a passive thing that you can't get away from. But with Jesus, it was something he marched right into, right? It, it, we're told he set his face like a stone, like a flint, right to the to the crucifixion. That was something that he was – I mean, here's the thing. In glory, right, Peter's saying it's good for us to be here, right? Like, let's set up three tabernacles. You're seeing this glory of Jesus. Jesus is going to go on and say, don't tell anyone about the things you've seen. you got to keep your mouth shut. Regardless of what happens, the accusations that are thrown against, that are thrown at him, the threats that he's he's reviled with, it's like, Jesus, I saw you on the mount. You know, like, please just do something. But yet he doesn't. He doesn't do something. And I think the thing that's so profound to me is that if he had, if he had, if he had ushered in a kingdom right here and now before he had he bought us back with his life's blood. There, he wouldn't have any citizens, right? We couldn't be in that kingdom with Jesus because we wouldn't have had his shed blood to satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. Jesus had to go to the cross. He was set to go to the cross. But um, talking, I want to turn. I want to turn to First uh, Peter, chapter one, verse ten. So, again. They're standing there talking with him about the decease he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Um, accomplish. Gosh, I missed something. I really want to, I apologize, guys. Accomplish. What is it that Jesus accomplished? How about we go to Colossians 2. I'm going to read this to you guys real quick. It says, in, in Christ's crucifixion, says, in Colossians 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. His crucifixion triumphed over principalities and powers. He nailed the, handwrit the handwriting of requirements that were contrary to us, that we couldn't fulfill. He nailed it to the cross. He erased those things on our behalf. And it's, it's, that, it's that accomplishment, right? And then again, if now we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, right? Th this grace, this salvation, was prophesied about in the Old Testament. It wasn't fully understood. They didn't understand all these things. But, oh, look at that. It's up there. I saw someone look. I was like, what? Anyway, um. It wasn't fully understood, but these things were prophesied in the Old Testament. They had searched these things. They'd searched them out carefully. And verse 11 says, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. So they wanted, well, like first off, let's note that it says the spirit of Christ was in those prophets, right? That's profound. It was the spirit of God leading them along, right? And yet here we're told it's the spirit of Christ. The same way Paul and uh, Romans chapter 8 equates God's spirit with Christ's spirit. And uh, I think it's verse 5. Anyone who has God's spirit, and then he, he equates it with Christ. It's also the spirit of Christ. So it was the spirit of Christ leading them to prophesy these things. And they're wanting to know, when's this going to come to pass? Right? When are these things going to be fulfilled? Verse 12. 
says to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which you have now which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel so the gospel that's now being preached and he's going to say by the power of the holy spirit sent from heaven he said they they understood that they were ministering to us the things which are now being preached the things that are now fulfilled and listen to this things which the angels desired to look into the angels remember you guys know the angels are in his presence or covering his face or screaming out holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come to him all glory honor power praise these angels it says all day long they're doing the screaming holy 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 and then what this god he's going to take on flesh like they get knowledge of this gospel and it says that they they long, the angels desire to look into these things. No doubt that is the, that's the very, I mean, of course, that makes perfect sense. It's the very thing that Moses and Elijah are discussing with Jesus on the mount. That's what they want to talk about. They're staring at his glory, and they're going to they're gonna talk to him about his death, the thing that he's going to accomplish on behalf of the creation. He's going he's to take the form of the creation that's rebelled against and committed adultery against him. He's going to go and he's going to die in their place. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Guys, this is God. This is, you know, the one that Moses, Lord, just show me your glory, right? And then, and then that glory, it veiled itself with flesh and it tabernacled with us. It dwelt with us. And, and here he is and he's, discuss, he's discussing with Moses and Elijah these things that are about to take place says in verse 5, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, I've already read this, I'll read it again. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, they're supposed to point us to Jesus, right? Paul says in Galatians, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. The Old, Old Testament points us to Jesus much so. You, you actually see the same thing occurring here. It's evidenced by, if you read in Luke chapter 9, verse 33, it was upon seeing Moses and Elijah depart. As they're departing, Peter says, oh, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me make three, three tabernacles. I'll set up shop, right? I mean, because he's saying he's got to go to the cross. And now he's just, I, I can imagine, guys, right? Shell shock, in awe. Jesus in his glory. Moses and Elijah. Is it the time? Like, probably, I mean, yeah, Peter, some things... Should be incredibly obvious to us, or I, sh I should say to Peter, um, but to all of us. But a lot of the time we just we miss it because we have preconceived notions that it can't be true. And Jesus going to the cross was one of those things. It didn't matter how many times he said it to Peter. It just like now that can't really be true. Right. So all that to say, I, I imagine Peter's because you read in Luke nine, like I said, you read that it was upon them departing. That he says, no, let me set up three tabernacles. But then you hear the voice. Well, in verse 6, it says he did not know what to say because he was greatly afraid. I have, I imagine he, there's, this, there's this fear, right? Because he, he wants, there's, pro, there's part of him that wants to submit to the authority of Jesus. God is showing, look, Jesus has authority. And he's, he's going to say, this is my beloved son, hear him, right? That is that. That's that fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, a prophet like me is going to come. Him you must hear, right? God's saying, with Moses now leaving, with Elijah now leaving, 
he's going to, you know, Peter's famous for having a big mouth and, and God uses it as a teaching opportunity. God, the father, he's saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him, right? The law and the prophets, Jesus, they point to Jesus. Jesus has come to fulfill them, but he is a, a more perfect manifestation, representation of God, God's heart. And again, he's the only way you're going to make it into God's presence. It wasn't, it wasn't by Moses. Um, it wasn't certainly wasn't by anything done by a prophet in the Old Testament. It was by Jesus. Um, in, in the rebuke earlier that came to Jesus, when he's teaching them, he must die. That he must, says in, in uh, Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then, of course, Peter rebukes him, because that's really smart. But how many times have we said, Lord, not so, right? Something, he, he, he makes something so clear, and yet we say in our heart, in our mind, with our mouth, Lord, not so. That, that can't be, right? But then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You're, you have your mind set on the things of men. He goes into that whole, if, you, if you're going to come after me, Take up your cross and deny and uh, take up your cross. I'm sorry. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of my, me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes into the glory. Into the glory, when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Ashamed of uh, that message of suffering, right? The Messiah's suffering. This, how can a Messiah be successful, conquering, reigning, ruling, and yet he's dying on a cross? Uh, what about this message of take up a cross every day? Like, that's offensive, right? We, You guys know this. We've talked through this. The Romans would torture and kill Jews on a cross to make a point. That's offensive. Jesus is saying, die to your, die to your flesh, die to yourself. It's countercultural. But we live in, I mean... As born-again believers, we, we ought to have the firm conviction that simply our sinful thought life makes us guilty enough of God's judgment, right? That is something that Jesus makes very clear in Scripture, but that's incredibly countercultural. Like, you hear guys, like, if you talk to guys, I do a lot of street evangelism, I talk to a lot of college kids, and you know, I talk to them about the issues of lust. This, you know, this free sex, free love, this this big issue, right? You talk to well, and then you talk to them about the, the fact that they can't even control who they look at and who they lust after. And they say, Well, I didn't I'm only looking, I'm not touching. Well, no, that's a that's a sin. And we as a church, we should have, as part of Christ's body, should have a very strong conviction about our thought life. That in itself is countercultural, not to mention when you say things like Women don't have the right to choose. They do not have the right to choose whether or not the, the life living inside their womb they can bring to term or not. If, if God ends the life, if, if, there's, if there's complications and the woman is, isn't, uh, un, is unfortunately can't bring the life to term, um, that's heartbreak. I've, guys, I've been through that a lot of times. I don't say that callously. I've, I've experienced that. My wife and I have mourned over um, three miscarriages. Um, and I know, I know some of you have too. I'm not saying I'm the only one. I'm just saying I understand it. I don't say that from, from a perspective of never experiencing it. But 
when you stand up and say, no, women ought not have the right. They do not have the right to choose. Uh, Pro-choice, right? You, you say things. You talk about our sinful culture and how it's deserving of God's judgment, and people get all, their hair stands up. How can a loving God judge? And, I mean, frankly, I, I made this point. I made this point at, at the Hancock Baptist Church on, on Sunday. You know, a lot of the things that we're judged for by God is because we've sinned against other things that God loves, right? No, but it's it's so hypocritical because I've seen videos, okay, of, of guys making cat calls after women. I'm not saying that's appropriate. It's completely sinful. should not happen. We already we just talked about lust. But then the 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 boyfriend, the the fiance, the husband standing by, turning around and knocking them out, right? I'm, and then you you have all these people like applauding him, like yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. Do not make catcalls after women. Don't do it. It's it is unacceptable. But to then inflict physical judgment on someone because of a whistle or or some, like that's just it's not that's. That is judgment, and and here the world is saying that a righteous God has no has um, a loving God, a righteous, holy, sovereign, loving God has no right to judge His creation. But yet they're applauding the guy who's just as sinful as the one behind him, whistling at his at his at his girlfriend. And he's, I mean, you don't you don't counter a cat call by giving someone a concussion. It's just not acceptable. Okay, that is the hypocrisy of our generation, and. Mark 8.38, it's a challenge to us to not fear cultural expectation, right? Anyone who's ashamed of me and my words, because the cultural expectation wasn't of a suffering Messiah, right? And, but I, I, I kind of want to echo part of what Justin, Justin's saying. There are things that God is much more concerned with than a political position, okay? That more, I mean, don't get me wrong. Politics are very important in life. Like they're a very important topic. But like moral uprightness. How about we turn to First um, Thessalonians four? Just we're on the theme of sexual immorality. I didn't bookmark this. I'm sorry. Hopefully, I get there quick enough. I'll probably flip back and forth by it six times. Ah. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort you, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Ephesians 5 says, don't even let sexual immorality be named among you. It shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be associated with you, right? Verse 4 in 1 Thessalonians 4 says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of, of all such, and we also forewarned you and testified. There, God is so much more concerned with the church's moral uprightness than a political position. Okay, There's definitely morality attached to a political position you take. But as the church, we need to be walking in holiness. And I think, I mean, frankly, 
not being ashamed of the call of Jesus, right? When he's saying, die to yourself, wake up daily and, and ask God, crucify me. And then also ask me not to be ashamed in my conversation with people, right? When they say, I mean, guys, I'm not, it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn. I didn't kiss my wife until the day I married her. You know how many people have looked at me so cross-eyed because of that? They're like, are you serious? That is so weird. Weird. What do you mean? It was amazing. I mean, seriously, guys, it was amazing. They're like, no, that's weird. I'm like, whatever. You know, praise God. It was weird. I'm, I'm not as sanctified as I want to be, and I never will be. But the fact that I get to say, obviously, that means everything else following it. I never kissed my wife, and we weren't in sexual sin leading up to that. Well, we weren't in sexual sin that night because we were married. But I apologize, guys. You know what I'm saying, though? I saved, I saved the kiss. And then the people look at me like, that's, that's just weird, right? Okay, but we're called. We're called to be different than the world. We're called to have such a high moral compass and also not be ashamed of it. Talk about it, right? Tell people what Jesus has done in your life. And it's simply because he died for you. Remember, the law couldn't sanctify anyone. And, and if it could, right, you, you, it's not going to result in a life of, of, of thanksgiving and praise because you wouldn't need to be forgiven. You just stand in heaven because you deserve to be there. But that's not the case. God saved you regardless of what you did. And now you get to, you can live a life thanking him and praising him and having his name on your lips. And every time someone gives you, every time someone asks, you can give them a reason for the hope that you have and don't be ashamed of it. But it does, again, guys, I truly believe that starts with who are you making your God? What is your God? What is your highest calling? What are you putting first every single day? Jesus says, let him deny himself. And that, of course, in Luke says daily, take up his cross, follow me. I rambled there. I, I hope I'm still on. So they were greatly afraid. And of course, Peter is just because he has that whole foot and mouth syndrome going on. But again, G God uses that. He uses that as a teaching moment. And honestly, sometimes God makes things so clear and yet we fear, right? Yeah, I did that on purpose. Clear and fear. He'll make things clear and we fear. Isn't Jesus good? Isn't Jesus merciful? What, what are you still scared of? Right? These words, these prophetic words have been given to the church to encourage and embolden us, not to make us scared. I mean, seriously, guys, taxes make me angry because of the things that, that they pay for. I don't like paying taxes, but I do, right? Um, this is much more petty, but other drivers on the road make me angry. And um, it's, but it's also one of those things where it's, it's something I want, I want to walk in step with the spirit. I don't, I don't want to trade road rage. I don't want to trade my relationship with God, the, the mind that set free from sin and the, the bondage of it. I don't want to trade that for road rage. What good is road rage? All I'm saying is I'm, I'm listing the, the top two things I'm most frustrated by. Yes, taxes, um, just simply because of how ungodly this government is, right? And also, I get, I have to pray a lot more when I'm driving, okay? I don't know why I'm like that. I, when, when I'm in Walmart, like I smile at everybody. Like I just, I, honestly, I want to talk to people. I want to stop and, 
when I'm driving, I, I just, Joe, John says it, but, oh man, hatred is such a strong word. But man, other drivers, they aggravate me so bad. All that to say, we're, we're called to, to lay those things down. Just the thought life, right? Don't be, don't let your pride run so rampant in your mind that you're cut off from fellowship with God every time you drive. I'm talking to Oliver, but seriously, that's where I live. I get in the car and I say, Lord, I don't want to lose fellowship with you because I'm an arrogant, prideful punk. Because I will in my flesh. Anyway, God is, God is better than that. So greatly afraid. You don't need to be, you don't need to be greatly afraid. Peter ought not be. Anyway, he's going to be rebuked again. A cloud came over and shadowed them, verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my beloved son. Hear him. Right? The law, the prophets, those who, who represent them, they're, they're walking away. But Jesus is here. Jesus' glory far surpasses the law and the prophets. But again, this is that divine teaching moment to show up. Reverence, it, it sinks in, it, it, it strikes them, and then they begin to leave. And God uses Peter's big mouth as, a, as an occasion to show them just how much more glorious Jesus is than the law and the prophets. So he's also saying, hear him, right? Regardless of your interpretation of scripture or how you think the Old Testament reads, what you think it says about what the Messiah is supposed to look like, what he's supposed to do when he first comes, regardless, I'm telling you right now, the one that's shining as bright as the noonday sun, listen to him, okay? Everything he says, regardless if it's in keeping with your interpretation of the Old Testament or if it offends other people, just do it. That's a hard pill to swallow. But who? What? what's your authority? What's my authority? Who's our authority? It's Jesus Christ. And, and for good reason, for many, many good reasons. Again, there's a disconnect. Things are going to be more clear to Jesus, excuse me, to Jesus' disciples after his resurrection. Um, but from, from the point of, from the perspective of seeing all these things, knowing how these things play out, we should, we should hear this voice that spoke from the cloud and, and it says, this is my beloved son, hear him. We should listen. Let's turn to, uh, I hope I, yeah, I have enough time. Second Peter, another, um, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter, speaking of this very occasion, right, says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That actually connects really well with verse 1 of chapter 9, because what this in fact does is this confirms that verse 2 was the fulfillment of the prophecy. Peter himself saying, look, we saw the coming of our, we saw the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus uses that same word. Um, some of you will not pass away before you see uh, the Son of Man. I'm going to turn back to it. Excuse me. Some of you standing here who will not, okay, there are some of you standing here who will not face death taste death, till they see the kingdom of God present with power. He uses that word power, right? You, you won't taste death till you see the kingdom of God present with power. He said, we saw it coming, right? And then we see Jesus in that power. We saw Jesus in that. The fulfillment of prophecy in verse one was in fact in verse two. You don't have to worry about it, right? Even if some people say, no, that's the second coming. Peter here is, he's giving you the commentary. No, we saw Jesus coming in his power. 
We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to ask the question, what made the mountain holy? And I, I confidently say it was God's presence. It was God's presence on that mountain, right? How much more you who believe in faith, who believe in Christ by faith, who, who've been saved by Christ, and now have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, right? And you, you might say, but you don't understand. You don't understand who I am. You don't understand how little I've done for God. And to which I'd say, okay, but if your works were needed, if your works were needed, okay, here, should I put it this way? It's not your holiness that makes the Spirit present in your life. It's the fact that the Spirit is present in your life that makes you holy. Okay? Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And then the objection I'm bringing up that you haven't done enough, right, to be that holy place where God dwells, well, then it would be valid. If, if, if righteousness could have come by the law, but it couldn't. Verse 22 says, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise of the blessing given to Abraham contained life. The, the promise, it contained life. And Jesus, you guys remember in Luke 19, on Jesus' procession into, um, into Jerusalem, the uh, triumphal entry, right? The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, make your disciples be quiet. And he said, well, and I'm paraphrasing. If I made my disciples be quiet, then the rocks would cry out, right? He, he, God can make inanimate objects. I don't know why I'm pointing at Galatians, but I'm pointing at the Bible. God can make inanimate objects cry out and worship if the people hadn't, if they hadn't given Jesus worship. You say, okay, well, that was, he was speaking proverbially. Okay, sure. Let's let's just grant maybe he was speaking proverbially because the, the people did cry out. They cried out in worship, and that was something that was prophesied in Psalm 118. But you you certainly have to take the point that God's saying he would make the impossible happen before he'd be, he'd be willing to allow the king of kings to come into his place without due honor. Jesus was going to be honored one way or the other. He received that honor. And also, speaking of this impossible, remember when he speaks about uh, the, the rich. It's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. I think that's Matthew 10. And they say, oh, Lord, who can be saved? And he says, with man, this is impossible. All things are possible with God. Okay? So regardless of where you're at, regardless of how little you've done or how much you think you've done, those who trust trust in Christ, have a reconciled relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Philippians chapter 1 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He began that good work in you. And here, and here don't get me wrong, I understand. You want to feel, we all, we all want to feel better equipped to be part of that entourage, right? We all, we want to beckon, we want to be holy. How much of us hate our sin? I hate my sins so much. It truly, guys, it is the reason why I get on my knees and beg just for God's presence, just to be that voice that I can hear and say, hey, listen, choose me right now. Don't choose the sin. And I say, okay, Lord, 
and I walk in it. I, I walk in that. That's that's grace. That's not me. That's that's a gift from God. But when we when we focus on ourselves, when when our eyes are looking on ourselves, when we're all caught up in self, right? We're it's going to lead to quarreling. To back, but we're going to be sinful when we're focused on Jesus, right? You come back to this Mount of Transfiguration, being in the presence of God's glory, it it postured the disciples into a natural position of worship. It just naturally brought them into that place because they were they were seeing God's glory. And then scared, it's going to pass away. It's going to leave. Let's build three temples, court, temples, tabernacles. That wasn't the right response. The, resp- the teaching moment is, no, focus on Christ. Not on the old, which is passing away, the law and the prophets. Focus on Christ, what he's doing. And again, he's not going to pass up going to the cross because he's got to go there. He's got to go there for you. He's got to go there for me. He's not going to pass it up, regardless of the fact that he could. Suddenly, in verse 8, it says, suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with them, right? So that's that whole, Jesus is, he's, his name, just Jesus. Don't let that be cliche to you. Just Jesus. They only saw Jesus. They looked on Jesus. And of course, now they've got to live with that. This man, this man that we've been with, you know, you know, we, we watch him as he has maybe, Food fall out of his mouth at the dinner table. He's got all these weird quirks about him. I don't know. Maybe that's totally sacrilegious. Maybe Jesus had no weird quirks, but I imagine he probably had some. You know. But that's still, when we were on that mountain, the glory was radiating out of him like the noonday sun. It was incredible. So in verse 9, it says, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one of the things that they'd seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they got to keep their mouth shut. Can you imagine that? Again, we talked about it. Could you imagine it? Not telling anyone. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Man, how obvious does a rising to the dead seem to us? Jews didn't believe in a spiritual resurrection. Resurrection to Jews was bodily. They understood that. But also, they didn't. Believe, it wasn't held that there was two comings of this Messiah. Right? There was a lot of debate. Over whether or not there was two two messiahs, because certain things were ascribed to the Messiah that would come that were so different from other things ascribed. But here, they're they're saying like, well, we've seen how glorious he is. Who could take his life? Life was radiating out of him, and yet now they're questioning. It's it's like sometimes we just struggle to understand things that are so obvious because we have these preconceived notions that they just simply can't be true, right? Jesus dying on a cross, and and they question among them. They well. They kept the word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. You know, I this is a little different. It's a little off topic. I'll connect it. But I was watching a video of a guy named Vody Bauckham. He's a uh, he's a he's a great Christian pastor, preacher, um, very smart, very intelligent. Um, I think he's a doctor. I think he has a PhD. He he was relaying this uh, occasion where he said he felt very judged. Like he often goes places, universities, and he's got the letters after his name. And he, he feels, he senses the, the air in the room. Like, oh, are, are you one of those anti-intellectuals? This is what he's saying, right? I feel like I'm being judged as one of those anti-intellectuals. Like, oh, I, I've, I've got some credentials, but really, like, do, do you really believe that the earth was created in seven days? And, and Vody Bauckham, he goes, no, absolutely not. 
I believe he was created in six days. God rested on the seventh. <laughs> and, um, and he's like, but the thing is, like, it's so, here's the thing. Certain things are so obvious, and they're, they're spelled out for us in Scripture. But yet, even I, in talking about that God being a necessary being, right, there are reasons from philosophy, from logic, common sense, and also from science that a creator is necessary, absolutely necessary for this universe to exist. And scientists are aware of this. Philosophers are aware of this. You can, you can, I won't do it. I don't have much time. You can use common sense to figure out that the universe isn't eternal and it, it in fact needs a creator. Uh, very, yeah, okay. I said I wouldn't do it. But all that to say, when... When the words say, in the beginning, God, right? And they say, oh, that's so anti-intellectual. But yet, honestly, the more we understand about existence, it's self-evident. It's necessary. It's needed. And so often, what you what, humans are plagued with the fact that they struggle to understand the obvious because they have this preconceived notion that the obvious is, is simply impossible. And, and here, it's, it's a little different, but you can see how that relates to, they're like, okay, right, you've said this thing, but I've seen who you are, and yet this, this death thing, okay, yeah, you say you're going to rise from the dead, but you're going to die, but you're going to conquer, you're going to rule and reign. There, there's a disconnect, right? So all that to say, we, gotta, we just got to take the word of God on faith. A lot of it, there are so many reasons to believe the word of God is credible. I'm not saying blind faith. I'm saying confident faith trusting faith but we got to take it we got to take it confidently we got to work through those harder issues so they question what the rising from the dead meant verse 11 they asked him saying why do the scribes say that elijah must come first and this this almost might seem like kind of a pushback like okay um so you're saying you got to die but you know the scribes are saying elijah has to come but why are they saying it? maybe they're trying to push back on what jesus is saying or, or maybe it's simply a sincere question because they just saw Elijah on the mountain. Like, okay, so Elijah's coming first. So why do they say that? And Jesus responds, he's, then verse 12, then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. So it's like, well, if he restores all things, then why do you have to die? And again, it's that whole, well, if there was a kingdom now, you don't get to be a part of it because Jesus hasn't died. Jesus needs to die. But Jesus says, indeed, right? The scripture's right. The scripture's correct. This is, this is spoken of in Malachi 4. Elijah is coming first. That's future tense, right? Is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So just because Elijah is coming, it doesn't, it doesn't, contra it doesn't refute, it doesn't um, get rid of the fact that Christ still needs to suffer. He's saying, yeah, you're right, indeed. Elijah is coming, but the Son of Man still must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He says in verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has also come. So this is this is past tense. He's already come. He's also come. So there's he is coming, but he's also come. And how is we'll talk about how that's fulfilled. But it, it says in the end of verse 13, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So John, Jesus says, if you can accept it. John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, right? He, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He, I don't hold up his, I don't think Jesus is saying John is literally Elijah. 
Um, I've heard it taught that way by certain people. Uh, maybe it was just a sloppy nuance. Uh, I don't know if that was actually what they were saying, but it sounded like that's what they were saying. Um, but Jesus is very plain. He says very plainly that John came in the, uh, the spirit and the power of Elijah, right? So he has also come, and that is John. They did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. And uh, so this is, I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure what that means because, I, I, I mean, John was beheaded. Um, he, was, he was rejected because of the message he had of Christ, and he was, he was ultimately beheaded. Um, maybe this has to do with the correlation between like the first and second coming that, you know, Elijah was rejected. You know, Elijah, he had that standoff with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, you know, they did everything they could all day long. They screamed and they cut themselves. And then ultimately at the end of the day, God, after the, the altar has been soaked, he comes down and he burns everything up, including, including the, the moat around it in the, in all the water. And, and so it's like, you know, the, the people of Israel, they repent. Well, some of them there, I don't, I don't know if it specifically says all of them, but they repent. And then Elijah finds out that Jezebel wants to kill him. So he runs off crying, screaming, crying. He's, you know, there's, it's only me. And, and God says, no, I've, 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 I still have a remnant. Right. And then Elijah's on the mountain. The point I was making was that initially Elijah was rejected. Okay. He came, he came with the word of God. He, came, he called people back from paganism, from idolatry, to serve the one true God, and yet he was still rejected. Ahaz's wife tries to kill him, and he, he gets scared about it, and he runs off. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm Actually, I think I'm going to connect the, the latter part with something else. But I, what I see in that is that in the same way Elijah was rejected, John was rejected. I don't... Maybe someone else knows how to harmonize, uh, to, to make sense of that. I'm not sure what it means when it says, as it is written. But I think it might have to do with the fact that in the same way Elijah was rejected at his his first coming, he's going to come again with Jesus. And at that time, he's going to be accepted. Jesus is going to come. He's going to set up his kingdom at his second coming. But John was also rejected that way. So on that note with Elijah, right, one, one point to make, and I'll, I'll hopefully wrap this message up with this. Um, the law couldn't bring you near to God, right? The law and the prophets, they, they always pointed forward to something that Jesus was going to fulfill. That thing that could bring you near to God. Um, Elijah, he runs off scared. It's, I, there's, I can't remember what it is. There's three things. I think there's a, a whirlwind, a storm, a fire. I can't remember what it is. But in all those things... He, di he didn't see God, but then he ends up, he, he hears God's still small voice, right? He, he finds God in the still small voice. He hears the voice of God. Um, Moses, right? Same mountain. He asked God to see his glory. And, and God says, you can't see me. You can't, you can't look on my glory and live, right? Maybe it's the judgment of his sin. I imagine it's just a sinful human. No man can look on my glory, right? So he hides him in the rock. He covers him. He, he says, you can see my hinder parts. You can see me as I pass by. And yet here you have on the mountain, you have the two men who represent the law and the prophets and their inability to bring you near to God. But yet you have God transfigured in your presence. You read in Matthew chapter 2, excuse me, Matthew chapter 17. I'll read it. 
Matthew chapter 17, this parallel account. At verse 2, it says, Then he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Moses saw his face. You guys remember, because of Moses' sin, he wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. God told him Joshua would do it. And now Moses is in the promised land, and he's looking on the face of God. There's, there's something about the law and the prophets that is, is clearly standing in contrast to God's grace and mercy, the grace and truth that is present in Jesus Christ, that's beckoning you to come near to God, but at the same time recognize his majesty. Recognize how far superior he is to anything in the created order. Okay? John 1.18 says, No man, I'm going to turn to it, but John 1.18 says, No man, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. In other manuscripts, it reads, The only begotten God who is in the Father's bosom, right? That's Jesus the Son. He's declared him. John goes on. John goes on. I love this, guys. In John chapter 12, starting in verse 37. It says, But although he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore... They could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they, see with their, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is in reference to Jesus, the one performing these miracles in verse 37. When did Isaiah see Jesus's glory? Let's turn to Isaiah 6. This is um, such a favorite passage of mine. It's amazing. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? So Uzziah, a revered king, passes off the scene. Um, uh, Isaiah's got a deal, got a deal with Ahaz following this, right? Uzziah dies. Isaiah has a vision. God's still on his throne. No one's taking God's throne from him. He's seen him high and lifted up. His train's filling the whole temple. The train of his robes filling the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The same thing they're saying in, in Revelation. Day and night. Right? Crying out over and over. Here is Isaiah seeing this magnificent being. Right, looking on this being in his glory. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's seen the king. This is when, when Isaiah gazed upon him. Right? John's saying in chapter 12, this was Jesus. Isaiah's gazing upon Jesus. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal to which he had taken with the tong coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord say, Oh, excuse me, I should stop at verse seven. 
Behold, you, I, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. This relationship, recognizing the magnificent glory of God and you being a sinner, him far above you and recognizing your awful depraved state. God's offering you. He's reaching out and offering you forgiveness. He does it to Isaiah. The thing, last verse, James 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? He's talking about the quarrels, the wars, the bickering, the backbiting, the lack of unity, right? Fulfill my joy and have, and have this unity among you, Paul says. But where James is saying, where do the fights, where do the quarrels come from among you? Are they not, do they not come from the desires for pleasures that war in your members? When you're focused on yourself, when you focus on your flesh, right, when you're all caught up in you, when you drive to church, guys, I'm, I'm serious. When you drive to church, just thinking about, oh, I hope that, I hope, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm blessed by Justin's voice, amen? He's got a good voice. But I don't head here because, because I've done it so many times. I loved it when Eric Mitchell led worship here. When he left, I was, I was like almost depressed. Seriously, it was almost depressing for me. But the thing is, we ought not come to church thinking about, oh, I hope, I hope the, the music blesses me, you know? Are you blessing God? Are you raising your voice and blessing him? Because when you're focused, and again, here's the point. If you're focused on yourself, when you focus on your flesh, you're going to get anxiety for one. Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs. It might be Psalms, but Old Testament says anxiety leads to depression. When you're, well, you're all hung up on yourself, you're going to quarrel. You're going to backbite. But listen, when you gaze on the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, for one, he, he, he offers forgiveness to you. He does that to Isaiah in the Old Testament, just recognizing the position, the state he was in underneath the holy God. And then here is Jesus in the New Testament. Let's not let his name be cliche. We, the world is miserable in using his name as a curse word. But for us, when we, when we just whisper the name of Jesus, we think of, oh, what Jesus has done. Oh, my sweet Jesus, right? What he's done for you, the way that he's made the, the, the forgiveness, and also the desire he has to sanctify you, to, to bring you to completion. He's going to do that. Focus on Christ. Let your meditation be on the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, the salvation, the, the forgiveness, the redemption of God. Let them be on this, this, this glorified Jesus. We know he's glorified. He sits at the right hand of God. He's, he's going to come again on the clouds of heaven. He deserves all honor, glory, praise. Amen? Truly, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we got to gaze into. We got to, we got to see a glimpse of this Jesus, Lord, your son, Lord, who shared, who who shared, had the same glory with you before the worlds ever were. Lord, and we know that you've glorified him again. You, he now sits at the, the seat of power, your right hand. He has offered us salvation. He has bought it for us with his blood. And it's no wonder the angels long to look into these things. If, if we could only know, if we could truly understand how glorious you are, it would blow our minds every day. Father, please give us a fresh look at your son. 
Please give us a fresh understanding of the fact that your spirit indwells us and he simply desires a humble relationship with us, Lord, where we would yield to him and allow him to live through us, Lord. Humble us. Make this a reality. Make this real in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.